Um, when the Apostle Paul first went into the region of Ephesus, um, for the first time, there was no church there. There had never been anybody to bring the gospel there. Um, he was just coming into this plain, fresh territory uh, in Gentile Roman world. And as he came there, he, he found um, a small group of about 12 believers um, that had kind of migrated into that area, and they were just meeting together. And he came into their midst, um, and he met with them a couple of times. And after um, observing them, after being around them, he asked them a question. He said, uh, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? And the reply that they gave was that we have not so much as even heard of any such thing. We don't even know what you're talking about. And it doesn't say this, but I believe that Paul's response was, I thought so. <laughs> because what he, um, what he observed in their lives uh, was that there was something missing. They were believers. Uh, they, they professed faith in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. They were saved. That wasn't the question at hand. He didn't say, um, you know, have you had your sins forgiven? Like that was already done. But he did notice that there was something missing. There was a dynamic in their lives. There was uh, something that he had come to recognize in his own life and in, in the lives of the thousands and thousands of Christians that he had been around in his ministry that they didn't have. There was something that was lacking. And so he felt compelled to ask them the question, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? And the reply was that we, we haven't even heard of that. We don't know what you're talking about. And so Paul said, well, then what, tell me about your baptism. And they explained. And, 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 it's, and Paul it says that then what he did is that he laid hands on them and he prayed that they would receive the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and there was a new dynamic that entered into their life at that point. There was a gifting. There was, um, there was a light. There was a power that was in them after that that they didn't have before that. And the result of that was that those 12 people and Paul started one of the most dynamic churches in the whole entirety of the first century. I mean, the church in Ephesus became a very powerful um, and fruitful church for the Lord and for his purposes. Paul would end up spending more time there than he spent in any other place uh, that he had gone. And when you read the book of Ephesians in the New Testament, it is full of the richest, most powerful truths that you can find. You know, there's very little wrong. There was not problems of sin like there had been in other churches. There was just a real powerful work going on within those Christians. And it is the desire of God that every one of us, that every Christian, um, be filled with that same power, that, that it is a privilege that he's given to us. And so the purpose of our class this morning is to talk about that, to understand what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and to live the Spirit-filled life. Uh, what is the purpose of, of all of that? And we begin with the person of the Holy Spirit himself. And that is the question that we begin with, is who is this person that we refer to as the Holy Spirit? That's an awful, peculiar name to give a living uh, uh, entity. And yet, uh, it, 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 he is a living entity. And so, um, we understand that he is a person. He is invisible, but he is very much a person. In John chapter 14... And the first of the verses that we'll look at in that chapter are actually on the, the note handout. But in verse 15, um, Jesus said this, and this was a new concept to the disciples. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments and I will pray 
the Father, and he will give you another comforter. That's the, the, the initial name that he gives, or helper. If you're reading a New King James Bible, it's translated helper. The word that's used in the Greek language is the word paraclete, which means uh, one who comes alongside to help. So Jesus essentially saying that I will pray and the Father will give you another helper that he, and I want you to notice that little pronoun there that Jesus used, that he may abide with you forever, even, and here's who he is, the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. And so he sets a contrast. Not everyone experiences this. The world on the outside doesn't know what this is. Because it seeth him not, sorry, a little typo there, neither knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you, and he shall be in you. So I want you to notice there how Jesus refers to him exclusively as a person. The Holy Spirit is not an it. It is not a power that is released from God that we simply tap into as some uh, world religions teach or some ideologies or philosophies, that there is a higher power in the universe. And if you can tap into it or learn how to channel it, then you can possess uh, you know, superhuman powers or do things beyond what uh, normally you'd be able to do. That's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is very much a person. And as a person, he has a will, he has a mind, he has emotions, um, and, and, and he has, has all the faculties of anybody else. Notice uh, another verse, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. Again, it's in your handout. Um, the Apostle Paul writing to the Ephesians, and he says, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed until the day of redemption. Now, I love the, the, um, the, the, the word that Paul uses there associated with the Holy Spirit. He says, grieve not the Holy Spirit. And to think about the fact that you can grieve him, that if it was an it, if it was just a power or an inanimate thing, then he would not be capable of, of feeling an emotion like grief. But it is possible for a believer, for you and I, to grieve him. Um, and so he's a person. He's a personality, uh, something beyond just an it. And so the question is then, who is he? Who is this person of the Holy Spirit? What is his personality? Well, looking down just a little bit further in John's gospel, in John chapter 14, and now in verse 20, Jesus says concerning him, he says, at that day, that is the day when the Spirit comes, you shall know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. He that has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. And he that loves me shall be loved of my father, and I will love him. And, and notice this, and it says that I will manifest myself to him. And so Judas said unto him, not Judas Iscariot, but the other Judas, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not unto the world? So Judas understands here that what Jesus is saying is that there will be a way in which Jesus is manifested to a person, but at the same time he's being manifested to a person, the world can't see it. And so Judas understands this isn't physical. It isn't that Jesus is going to physically come alongside because then everybody would see it. So he says, how are you going to do this? And so Jesus answered in verse 23 and said unto him, if a man loves me, he will keep my words 
and my father will love him and we, that is the father and the son, we will come unto him and make our abode or our home with him. So the answer to the question of who is this person of the Holy Spirit is that he is one with Jesus and the Father. So the personality of the Spirit is identical to the personality of God, the personality of, of the Father and of the Son. He is one of them. And it's from this that we get the concept or the idea of the Trinity or the triunity of God, that he is three distinct persons, but yet those three distinct persons are one and the same. One God manifested in three parts, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so they are identical. Now, the greatest revelation of who the Holy Spirit is can be observed in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Because if they're one and the same, then we learn the most about the Holy Spirit by looking at Jesus. If we want to know what he's like and who he is, then we simply look at Jesus and we can understand the personality of the Holy Spirit. What else can we learn about this person of the Holy Spirit? In Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, um, <clears throat> it says this. John, who was the human author of the book, he says, To the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come. That is, of course, Jesus. And, notice this, from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Now you say, wait a minute. You just said the Holy Spirit, singular. What do you mean by this seven spirits that are before the... Is this getting more complicated? Because now we're up to... Are we up to nine in one or ten in one? Like, what what in the world is, is this all about? Uh, again, um, down just a little bit further in the book of Revelation, the Holy Spirit is referred to again in this way, uh, the seven spirits which are before the throne of God. Why is this used? Why is in the book of Revelation um, it, it called the seven spirits of God? And the reason is this. It's one spirit, but there are seven qualities of that spirit as defined in the Bible that make up who he is. If again, if you look at the, um, the sheet that I gave you, you'll notice I have uh, Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2 written out for you there. And I want to read those verses and then you'll understand. He, it says there, it says, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall go out of his roots. And that is speaking um, symbolically of, of Jesus Christ. He would be a descendant of David through Jesse. Jesse was David's father. And so it's speaking of Jesus who would come into the world. And now describing him, it says this. It says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Now, the Bible is always the best interpretation of the Bible. That's always the case. If you, want to, if you don't understand something in the Bible, rest assured that the answer to your question is going to be found somewhere in the Bible, not with some man who says, well, this is what this means and God showed me in a dream or something like that. The answer is always going to be in the word. And so when we ask the question, what does it mean by the seven spirits of God? The answer is here in Isaiah um, concerning the spirit which will be upon Jesus Christ. The sevenfold spirit of God manifested in these ways. First of all, the spirit of the Lord. That is the spirit of Christ. A spirit of 
love. God is love, right? Then a spirit of wisdom. And I'm not going to go through and define each of these words. But what this is giving to us is the character traits or the personality traits of the Holy Spirit. Now, the way I look at these in my own life and, and how this relates to you and I is that these are the graces or the, um, the ways in which the Holy Spirit shows up most regularly in our lives. When you read the prayers of Paul in the New Testament, oftentimes when he prays for them, he says, I pray that you would receive the spirit of wisdom and understanding in revelation of the knowledge of him. And he uses words that are right in this list of things that are right here. Because these are the character traits of the Holy Spirit. This is what he gives and what he provides, who he is. It's what makes God, God. He is loving, he is wise, he's understanding. He's full of good counsel, he's the wonderful counselor. He's strong, mighty to save. He has knowledge and he gives to us the fear of God. Those are, those are the things that the Holy Spirit produces and provides within our life. So therefore, in answer to the question, who is the Holy Spirit and what is his personality? His personality is identical to that of the Father and of the Son. And he's defined by the characteristics given to us here in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. That's who we're talking about when we talk about the Holy Spirit. Now, concerning the Spirit's work within our lives, his um, relationship with the believer. There are three relationships that a person, a human being, can have with the Holy Spirit as it is defined in the Bible. Um, the scripture tells us, if you're already there in John chapter 14, look at verse 17 again, what Jesus says. Speaking of the spirit of truth, he says, The world cannot receive him because it sees him not, neither knows him. But watch this at the end of the verse. He says, But you know him, for he dwells with you, and he shall be in you. Now, right there, what we have in this verse are two out of the three relationships that a person can have with the Holy Spirit. The first relationship is defined by that word, with that Jesus uses there in verse 17, that the Spirit of God dwells with you. Now listen carefully. This is true for every human being that lives on the face of the earth, that the Holy Spirit dwells with them. The word with means alongside. And that's important to understand. He's on the outside, but he is with now, what is the purpose and intent of the Holy Spirit being with a person? The answer is to bring them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, didn't he, that I stand at the door and knock. And if any man will open, then I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And the two will become one. And so prior to a person coming to faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit is alongside that person, bringing them and convincing them that Jesus is the way and that they might open their heart to him, that he might come in and save them. And so you're in your life and somebody shares with you the gospel message, or you're in a church service and you hear the gospel being preached, or however else God does it, maybe even in a different way that's different than, than the, the normal way that we would think. 
What's happening is that the Holy Spirit is alongside whispering in the ear of our heart saying, it's true. It's true. There is a God. There is truth. The world didn't come from nothing. You are not an accident. Something does happen after you die. There is a problem. You're not right with God. All of those things, the unsettledness that you feel when you lay your head down on your pillow at night and you wonder, where did I come from? Why am I here? What's going to happen in my life? What, what is truth? All of those things, that's the Holy Spirit alongside of you seeking to bring you to a place where you'll surrender to Christ. And that happens to every person because God gives everyone an opportunity to get right with him through his son. That's with. That's the first relationship. Now, when a person opens their heart to Jesus and allows him to come inside, then a person enters into the second relationship that they can have with the Holy Spirit. And that is defined by the word that Jesus uses at the end of verse 17 when he says that he shall be in you. The word in means inside. Now, do you notice there that that's in the future tense? Jesus said he's with you right now, but he shall be in the future in you. It's something that hasn't happened even for the 12 that were with Jesus as of yet. It happens when a person is born again. Now, in John chapter 20, and you could keep a finger in John 14 if you want, and just flip over a couple pages to John chapter 20, because I want to show you when this happened for the disciples. In John chapter 20, this is after the death and resurrection of Christ. It's after he's risen from the dead. Notice what it says in verse um, 20. It says, and when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace be unto you. As my father has sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. That must have been refreshing. And he said unto them, receive ye the Holy Ghost. And at that moment, when Jesus breathed on them and said, receive you the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit went from being alongside of them to now being inside of them. It couldn't happen until Jesus had gone to the cross because their sins had not yet been paid for. They couldn't be purified and cleansed. You have to be cleansed before the Spirit can come in. And so at this point now, the blood has been shed, faith has been accepted, and Jesus breathes on them. And these are the first to receive the indwelling of the Spirit of God within their life. He's with you. He shall be in you. It's the second relationship. Every believer, everyone who puts their faith and trust in Christ, experiences the Holy Spirit being inside of them. The Apostle Paul would write to the Ephesians and he would say that you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. We read that verse already. It's Ephesians 4.30. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit, the one who sealed you until the day of redemption. Now, the amazing thing about that is that once you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit and he lives inside of you, you can no longer be touched by darkness. Satan cannot possess someone who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. The Bible says that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So we've been sealed, the door is closed, and Satan can't get inside. And that's important that you understand because sometimes you're going to hear people say, well, I have a 
evil spirit of an evil demon of this inside of me. Or you'll hear about someone who goes to a special deliverance church service. I'm a Christian, but I had seven demons cast out of me today. No, you didn't. Because you cannot be possessed by a demon after Jesus comes into your life. He seals you. The word sealed, it's the same word that's used in the book of Revelation when it says that Satan is bound for a thousand years and God seals the pit that he can't get out. Same word. He seals it. You're sealed. Just like you take a piece of fresh wood and you seal it with like an oil or a stain. Once you've done that, you've closed the pores. You've protected it. Nothing can get inside anymore. And when we've been sealed by the Spirit of God, he owns our life exclusively. You say, well, what about the evil things that are still in me after the fact that need to be cast out? Here's the answer. It's your flesh. <laughs> that's, that, that's that part of us that still remains, that needs to change, that needs to die. <laughs> you know, when we carry it to Christ and bring it to his cross. You know, many things we blame on the devil is really just us. You know, <laughs> we said the devil is this. It's not the devil. It's me. That's, if I'm honest, that's the problem is that I need to die, you know. Um, that's part of my flesh. And so that's the second relationship. But there's one more. I want you to notice this. In Acts chapter 1, um, and, and you, might, you might turn there. I thought I had written it out, but I didn't. Oh, I did. I put it on here. It's uh, down in um, section C, uh, but I still didn't write it out, actually. But Jesus said this. And, and here's what's important to understand. If I lost you, come back for just a moment. In John 20, Jesus said, said receive the Spirit, right? And the Spirit went inside of them. After that, after the Spirit was already inside of them, just before Jesus ascended for the last time, Jesus said these words. It's Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He said this. He says, you will receive power. Dunamos is the word in the Greek. Dynamite. That's where we get the English word dynamite. There's going to be a power in your life. You will receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you. That's the third relationship. Upon. It, the word is epi in the Greek. He says, and you will be witnesses for me in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so the third relationship that a believer can have with the Holy Spirit, not just the with, not just in, but now upon my life. That was the question that Paul had for the Christians in Ephesus that he had first met. Have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? And they said no. And he prayed for them, and it says there that the Spirit came upon them, and that's when the dynamic started in the city of Ephesus in their lives. And so the third experience is a baptism of the Holy Spirit, a baptism of power that comes upon the life of a believer in Jesus Christ. It's where we get the term, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You say, well, is that phrase actually used in the Bible? Is that a such thing, a baptism of the Holy Spirit? Yes, it is. It's Luke chapter 3, verse 16. And it was spoken by John the Baptist when he was speaking of what Jesus would do. John said to those who were listening to him, he said, I indeed baptize you with water, but there's coming one after me who's more powerful than I. In fact, I'm not even worthy to unloose his sandal strap. That's what John said. 
And he said, he, when he comes, he will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And that's what, what John was referring to. And, and it's what we read about Jesus when he says that you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And 10 days after Jesus spoke those words, on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verse 1, it says that when the day of Pentecost was fully come, the disciples were all gathered together in one place. And it says there was suddenly the sound of a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the place where they were sitting. And it says that they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, that there was an upon that happened. It says that the heaven opened, there was cloven tongues like a fire that came and rested upon each of their heads. And they all began to speak with tongues and prophesy and magnify God. And on that day that the Holy Spirit came, 3,000 people were saved. And the church was officially born on the day that the Spirit was poured out. So the upon of the Holy Spirit is the third relationship um, that, that a believer can have. You say, well, what's the purpose of this power of the Holy Spirit? Uh, when we talk about the Spirit-filled life uh, or the Spirit-dominated life, what is the purpose of that power? The answer is this. The answer is that we might be a testimony or a witness for Jesus in the world. Acts 1.8, you'll receive power and you will be witnesses for me in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. And so the, the reason that God gives us the power of the Holy Spirit is so that we can be a testimony of Christ in the world. That there's a supernatural element into our lives where people can look at us and they can say, there's something different about you. I see something in your life and in you that I don't see anywhere else. And I want what you've got. It's like when we learned about in our born again study a couple weeks ago when Nicodemus came to, to Jesus at night. And he said, teacher, he says, we know that you're a teacher that's come from God because no one could do the things that you do unless God is with him. And, and what they were seeing in Jesus that attracted them to him is what the Holy Spirit brings into our lives. And the purpose of it is to cause people to draw near and say, what is it about you that makes you the way that you are? And the answer is, it's God in me. It's nothing in me. It's God. That's what you see. And that's the desire of God. And it's the purpose of his power within our lives. Well, the next question is, um, do all Christians experience this power and can all Christians experience this power? And the answer to the first of those questions, sadly, is no. Not all Christians do. There are some. They're saved. They'll, they'll be in heaven. They're not lacking the presence of, of, of the Spirit in their life. But they lack the presence of the power of God upon their life. And it happens. We see it even in the book of Acts a couple of times. But it doesn't have to be that way. Because everyone who's a Christian can experience this power. Look at uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 37. It's in your packet on, on the second page. Um, Peter, on the first day that he was empowered by the Holy Spirit, spoke these words. He was asked, what is this that's taking place? Why, why is this happening today? It says, now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and they said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, repent, turn from your sins, 
and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, the putting away of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Notice that it's a gift. It's something that God gives. We don't earn it. We don't like get enough points or enough experience to where now we can apply for it. You know, okay, well, God, I've done this and this, and so now would you release this in my life? And he says, well, you haven't done quite enough yet. If you sell a few more boxes of cookies and, you know, lead a few more people to me, or he doesn't do that. It's a gift. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Ghost for the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. I'm so glad that Peter spoke those words, that he said it like that. That, that, that he even extended it into the generations that are to come. Because what that does is it, it, it doesn't allow anybody to say, well, this power doesn't exist anymore. It was something that was for them in the first century and then it passed away and now we just go to church and you know, drink wine or something like that. You know, no, it's a power of the Holy Spirit that's for everyone, for all generations of the church age. It's something that every single one of us are entitled to have and that God wants us to have within our lives. So you'd ask next, you would say, okay, well, if I open myself up to God's power within my life, what's going to happen? Because I've seen some crazy things happen on TV. Am I going to have to bite the head off of a snake or, you know, are my eyes going to roll back in my head? Am I going to fall down? And am I going to start speaking with tongues uncontrollably and, you know, casting demons out of people? And, you know, what's going to happen in my life if the Holy Spirit gets a hold of me? Well, again, we don't want to go to TV to get our answer. Right, we want we want to go to the Bible. The first thing that's going to happen when the Spirit comes upon our lives is that the graces of the Holy Spirit are going to begin to appear. Now, again, thinking on Isaiah chapter eleven, verse two, those seven qualities that are listed there that make up the personality of the Holy Spirit, those qualities are going to begin to rapidly grow within our lives. A spirit of love and concern for others. That, that's what personifies the spirit of the Lord. It's the spirit of Christ. The things of God are going to be very important to us because they're important to the Holy Spirit. And so if the Holy Spirit is in and upon our lives empowering us, then the things that are important and cherished by God are going to be important to and cherished by us. It's going to be automatic because the spirit is now in our lives. We're going to start to care about people because God cares about people. We're going to have a love for people that once we looked at them, we had disdain for them. You know, we, we would think, I shouldn't love that person. Why do I? I have a compassion for them that I never had. That's going to be a byproduct of the Holy Spirit within our lives because the Spirit brings love into our lives. All of the other graces, the wisdom, the knowledge, the understanding, the strength, the inward strength, the ability to counsel both ourselves and others as we grow in, in our understanding of him. And of course, the fear of God, which is an essential, necessary thing in every one of our lives, that we never lose the fear of God. When we lose that, we're in trouble. Harm is coming our way. But those things are going to come into our lives when the Holy Spirit is upon our lives because it's who he is. And so those graces are going to appear. Now, this is what I've observed, is that every one of these things... Is, is evident in the life of a spirit-filled person. But there are always one or two that are predominant of these graces that we read about in Isaiah chapter 11. There's always one or two that are predominant in a person's life depending on their makeup 
and the call that God has placed upon them. Everyone possesses the Holy Spirit, but no one possesses all of it, all of, you know, all of all the graces of it. And so as an example, we look at Samson's life. Which of those seven characteristics was God most clearly manifested in Samson's life? Strength. Strength. Right. Very good. Solomon. Which one of those was most predominant in his life? That's right. And so do you understand? And so you look at, you look at, at those things. And, and part of discovering who we are in Christ is seeing where, our, where the strength of the Spirit is within our lives. You know, and so we begin to see those things unfold in us as the Spirit comes upon us. Another thing that happens in my life is that the heart and mind of the Spirit rapidly grow in us. You know, we, we become more like Him because His Spirit is taking possession and control of our lives. A third thing that happens, and this is where it starts to get fun. It's all fun, but it gets fun, is that the gifts then of the Spirit begin to surface. Um, when the Holy Spirit comes into and upon a life, he gives gifts to, to, to us, spiritual gifts as they're called. I've asked you to turn to Romans chapter 12. The, the, the section of scripture is just, just a little bit more than I wanted to type up and put on the page. I don't want to give you guys like seven sheets of paper each week, you know. <laughs> Someone said thanks. <laughs> But I also know like the chances of you, you know, having time to go through and look up all the verses, is, it ain't going to happen. So I write some out at least. <laughs> uh, Romans chapter 12, notice in verse 3. This is Paul writing. He says, For I say through the grace given to me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. As we have many members, people, in one body, the body of Christ, and all members do not have the same office or purpose. In other words, the body of Christ is made up of many individuals, and yet we're all individually unique. One body, many members. He says in verse 5, So we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of each other. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. And then he lists what these gifts are. Here's the gifts. Seven of them. He says, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith that we have. The gift of prophecy is speaking forth the word of God. In a sense, when I am doing what I'm doing right now, I'm prophesying. The Bible says that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And so when we speak of Christ or speak about him, we're exercising the grace of prophecy. Now, for some, it's a gift. God has given a gift to do that. He's gifted them and enabled them uh, to speak forth for him. It's different from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, people were saying, thus saith God and bringing revelation that previously wasn't there. There is no new revelation. The Bible is the completed revelation of God. If someone claims a new revelation of God, then you automatically in your mind mark them as false. Because Jesus said, if anyone adds to the words of this book, let the plagues from this book be added to them. It is full, right? So the spirit of prophecy in the New Testament is forthtelling the things of God to others. And there are times that God will give information. It's not revelation, but it's information. You know, about something that's to come. That can happen today as well. 
Another gift, he says in verse 7, the gift of ministry. Ministry means service. And some people have a gift to serve. A couple of my kids have this gift. I can see it unfolding in them already. They just love to serve. You know, they're, they're not necessarily, you know, people that speak a lot. They're quieter. But, they, but as soon as there's an opportunity to serve someone, they light right up and they love to just do it. They're so willing. They want to. It serves a gift of ministry, a gift of serving. Another, it says um, in verse 7, is he that teaches on teaching. That's my primary gift. It's what God's given to me, the ability to uh, take the things of God, make sense of them, and then explain it in a simple way that others can receive it. It's teaching. It's, it's just explaining truth. You know, It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. Then, verse 8, it says, or he that exhorts or encourages on exhortation. Now, in case you didn't know, that's Pastor Bobby's primary gift. You know, Bobby could make Eeyore smile. You know, it's a gift of just encouraging. And some people have the ability to just come alongside and just speak life into people and raise their countenance with their words. You know, it's a gift of the Holy Spirit. Then he goes on in verse uh, 8 to talk about the gift of giving, someone who just gives. Now, again, not everyone has this gift. If you were to rank mine by order of greatest to least, giving for me, way at the bottom. <laughs> Unless it's giving truth. I love giving truth. you know. But when my wife's like, hey, can we support my aunt? I'm like, no, no, no. She likes to give. <laughs> you know? I, and I, I like to not give. you know. Uh, um, so that's just being honest, right? We have to be honest with each other. You know? It's not by strength. You know? But I'm growing. Just, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It says, he that gives, let him do it with simplicity. And evidence of the gift of giving is that, you know, not giving like so that everyone sees it, but just cheerfully giving in secret from the heart, having a delight to share and be a channel. Again, he that rules or governs or administers, it's a gift of administration. Highly organized people, I like to call them. Uh, gifts of administration, the ability to just coordinate and rule, lead, leaders. And then finally, number seven, he that shows mercy, a gift of mercy. Someone who can just have compassion on people that need compassion, showing mercy, even to people that we might think don't deserve it. But it's part of what Jesus does, right? It's who he is, and it's a gift uh, then that he gives. So these are the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You say, well, how do I discover what my gift is? And here's the answer. What comes to you most naturally? When the Spirit of God is in your life, what comes to you most naturally? That's, that's the answer. If someone walked in the room right now um, and, and had a glass of water and they said, you know what, you sound a little parched and, and they were going to bring me a glass of water and on their way towards me they tripped uh, on the rug and they fell and broke the glass and water went everywhere. How would you respond to that uh, circumstance right in front of you. There's some that would look at that circumstance and they would see it in the complete spiritual light. And they would say, thus saith the Lord, as you have sought to bring refreshing, but refreshing will not come. You know, and they would see like, <laughs> they would see this, this, this total spiritual thing that's going on in the dynamic. Why did God allow that to happen? That person has the gift of prophecy, <laughs> you know, just looking at things completely in the supernatural. There's another person that would look at that and they would, they would just in, and be inquisitive. Like, well, why did that happen? Well, they, their foot, you know, the carpet in here, it's like walking in the mall. Your feet just get stuck on that floor. And, and, you know, then the centripetal force of that, that's the teacher. 
<laughs> you know, the one who's explaining why it happened, you know. Then someone else would stand up and say, oh, my goodness, we have a tragedy. we got to fix this up. And they, they would point and they'd say, all right, would you please go get a broom? we got to get this broken glass. And you go get a mop and you go get the first aid kit. That's the person with the gift of administration or the gift of ruling or the gift of leading. Someone else would be like, oh, are you okay? Your knees, your head. That's the person with the gift of mercy. Someone else would say, man, you know, that rug is going to need to be cleaned and that glass needs to be replaced. You know, I'm just going to, you know, give a little extra today to cover that. You know, that's the person with the gift of giving. Oftentimes, the way that we respond to the things that are going on in the world around us reveal to us what our gifts are. And so they're discovered in a very natural sense. They're supernaturally natural. Those are the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now you say, I always was taught that the gifts of the Spirit are listed in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. That those are the gifts of the Spirit. The word of knowledge, the word of wisdom, uh, you know, tongues, interpretation of tongues, healing, miracles. You know, that those are the gifts of the Holy Spirit. No, those are not the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Let me show you. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. <clears throat> right after Romans. So if you're already in Romans, just one, one more book to the, to the right. In verse 4, Paul says this. He says, now there are diversities of gifts and in your mind, Romans 12. If you want, nearby, you could actually write Romans 12, near that word gifts, in verse 4 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. That's not what he's talking about in this chapter. He says, now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. In other words, the Spirit is the one who gives those gifts out. Now watch this, verse 5. And there are differences of administrations. Now that word administrations, tucked right inside You'll see the word ministry. Do you see it there? Administration. It's where we get the word ministry. It means outlets of service, different ministries. And so for an example, there are church ministries. There are campus ministries. There are uh, pro-life ministries. There are radio ministries. There's all kinds of diversities of ministries, right? We understand that. There are differences of ministries, but it's the same Lord, in other words, Jesus appoints and plants all of these different ministries in the various places that they are. Then in verse 6, he says, and there are diversities of operations. What does that mean? You and I might both have the gift of teaching, right? And we might operate in a similar ministry or a different ministry. So our gifts operate differently. I operate teaching the way you see me teaching right now. Someone else might teach with pictures. They draw a picture on the board and then they point to things and they're illustrating as they go and that's their way, their operation of teaching. Someone else might teach with music. They might write songs that have a, a message that teaches. And, and so there's different operations that different people can have to use the gifts that God has given to them. We're all different within their ministry. So there's different operations, but it's the same God which works all in all. Now watch verse 7. Here's our verse. But 
the manifestation of the Spirit. Do you see that? Manifestation means the unveiling or to be made known. The manifestation of the Spirit is given to who? Every man. Every man to profit with all. Now, not everyone has every gift. Not everyone has every operation. But everyone can have what he's about to list next, the manifestation of the Spirit. That's what 1 Corinthians 12 is, the manifestation of the Spirit. And what is that? Verse 8. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom. You know what the word of wisdom is? It's supernaturally knowing what to do in a given situation. It's like, you ever been puzzled by something? A situation is so complex. And you go, I don't know what to do. And then all of a sudden it's like, you know what to do. That's a word of wisdom. Like God's, oh. And you go, yeah, I know. I know exactly. I remember one time uh, a pastor was telling me about um, a situation where he was serving in Africa on a mission trip. And a man got saved who was a doctor. And he came to the, 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 the minister and he said, I have seven wives and he said, and while I got saved today, the Spirit of God told me immediately that that was wrong. What do I do? And he's like, he said, which one do I stay with? That was the question. <laughs> he's like, which of these six ladies do I, you know, uh, dismiss and which one do I keep? And, he, and, and that's tough. Like, you know, what do I, how do you answer that question? You know, here someone came for counsel and he said, God gave him a word of wisdom in the moment. And he asked the guy a question. He said, are any of your wives believers? And he said, yeah, one. He goes, you stay with that one and you support the other six. It was, that's wise. You know what I mean? It's a word of wisdom, you know. To another, he gives the word of knowledge. The word of knowledge is, is that you supernaturally know something that there's no other way that you could know except God told you in the spirit. It's a manifestation of the Spirit. Now, God can give that to you no matter what your gift is. You could be a giver or a governor or a teacher, and God can give you that. And we need it. When we need it, he gives it. And then the list goes on. And you can read that on your own. Faith, healing, you know, all, all the rest um, as he lists off what these manifestations are. But here's my point. My point is that when the Spirit of God comes upon your life, there's going to be gifts that come to the surface. And as you use those gifts, God is going to be manifested. The manifestation of the Spirit is going to show up in the using of those gifts, and there will be a supernatural element to that within your life. And then finally, what's going to happen when uh, the Spirit of God comes upon my life is that the fruit of the Holy Spirit will come forth and seek to overtake and choke out the works of the flesh. Turn to Galatians 5. <clears throat> Galatians is just a little bit further into the New Testament. So if you were in 1 Corinthians, just go, um, actually, 2 Corinthians and then Galatians. It's just one more book to the right. Galatians chapter 5. And I'll pause till I stop hearing pages. <laughs> just another second. Galatians 5, verse 19. Paul says again, he says, Now the works of the flesh, and when he talks about the flesh, he's talking about the old corrupted me. The works of the flesh are manifest. They're already made known. We don't need any special gifts in order to bring that out. <laughs> they come out. 
And these are them, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, that means, you know, just rioting, doing whatever I want, idolatry, witchcraft, that's drug use, hatred, variance, that means rebellion, emulations, that means imitating, wrath, strife, seditions, that's, you know, um, just being contrary, heresies, envyings, being jealous of others, murders, which is equivalent to anger, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. So in other words, the list goes on. I mean, we could make this list forever, right? We know what's, what's inside of us uh, once we see it. You know, we, it's just disgusting. This is what comes out of our lives in the flesh. And he says, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. To live after the flesh is the evidence that there is no work of Christ going on within your life. Now, the contrast of that in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit. Now, notice the difference between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. The works of the flesh is automatic. Fruit is grown and is cultivated. So the Spirit of God in my life is going to cultivate and bring forth, first of all, love. After that, joy. Then peace. Then long-suffering, which is just King James for patience. Gentleness. Goodness. Faith. Meekness. Temperance. And against such, there is no law. And in verse 24, he says, And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. And so what happens in the life of a Spirit-filled person is that there is a war that's going on between the old fleshly nature and the new, renewed spiritual nature inside of me. And what God wants to see happen in our lives is that the old things are continually crucified, crushed, and removed, and that the new things of the Spirit of God are taking over. And I'm becoming less and less like the first list and more and more like the second. And that's where you and I come in, in our will, because we have a part to play in seeing that happen. We have the choice to make of whether or not we're going to allow those old things to be crucified and crushed and removed so that we make room for the Holy Spirit to grow within our lives. We yield. God then does the work inside of us. Somebody said one time that in every human heart, every Christian's heart, there are two pieces of furniture. There is a throne and there is a cross. And if I am on the throne, then Jesus is on the cross. But if Jesus is on the throne, then I am on the cross. And that's always the way it's supposed to be. He's to be on the throne in my heart, in my life. He's to be ruling and reigning there. But in order for him to be on the throne, I've got to be on the cross because it's musical chairs. Nobody's without a piece of furniture to sit in, you know. And so I'm called to take up my cross and allow him to do his work within my life. It's painful as the process of transformation happens and the flesh is rooted out, but the result is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. There's love, there's joy, there's peace, there's patience, there's kindness, goodness, meekness, self-control. All of those things that bring blessing into our lives is the byproduct. And so the Spirit in and upon my life is going to bring forth the fruit of the Spirit 
while the works of the flesh are increasingly choked out of my life. And so the question in closing now, as I have effectively again filled the entire hour with my words, <laughs> exercising the patience that you all are called to have, you know, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the question that remains is how then do I receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit within my life? If it is evident that not everyone does, but everyone can, then how can I ensure that I am experiencing the fullness of what God has made available to me within my life? Thankfully, there is not a 12-step program of things that you have to do in order to obtain this. It's really two things. Number one is ask. Luke chapter 11, verse 13, Jesus said this. He said, if you then, being evil, and he wasn't, he was saying in comparison to God. So don't get offended. If Jesus isn't just uselessly casting insults at us, you know. He's saying, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? You know how I ask for the Holy Spirit in my life? I bring to God his word. I say, God, your word commands that I be filled continually with your Holy Spirit. Your word says that the promise is for me and for all that will even come after me. So you've made the promise to me and you told me to ask. And so, Lord, today I ask that you would give me a fresh baptism of your Holy Spirit in my life, a fresh filling with you. Seven times a day I might pray this and ask, God, I need more of you. I'm asking for more of you in my life. And that's my part in it. And it says, as we've received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in him. How do I receive him? By faith. And so I ask him to fill me. I just ask God do it. Then the second part in the whole thing is to receive it by faith. To receive it by faith. Sometimes when a person is empowered by the Holy Spirit, they have some kind of a um, sensational experience. You know, you'll read in books about people that, you know, had these incredible experiences when the Spirit first came upon their, their lives. There was this, you know, joy unspeakable and full of glory. Or they'll say, it was like waves and waves of liquid love, you know, pouring over my soul. And it was so intense that I told God if he didn't stop, I would die, you know. And I, I have no doubt that wasn't my experience, though. And, and you know, for me, it was just a simple asking. And, and for me, it was just a changed life after the fact. Not, not even all at once. Some things were immediate. But there was a very natural, gradual uh, expression in my life of, of the things of God coming out. He gave me an unquenchable love and desire for his word. That was the, the biggest way that God uh, changed in me when I asked him to fill me and empower me with his Holy Spirit. I couldn't get enough of the Bible and the understanding that he would give me every time I would read it. And that he still does, even to this day, in reading the Bible and the things that he, he will show and reveal. That's the way God manifested in, in my life, you know. But he will absolutely answer that prayer when we come to him and ask. And then here's the other ingredient. So the asking and receiving is one. And here's the other. This is the, this is the essential. And it is the surrender. When we're asking the Holy Spirit to take possession of our lives, to come in and upon our lives, we are effectively resigning control over our lives into the hand of him. 
And we can only experience as much of him as we are willing to yield of ourselves. And so if we ask God to empower us by his Holy Spirit and take possession of our lives, but we're not willing to lay it down and allow him then to do it, then we're contradicting our prayer with our actions and attitude. Do you understand? And so many people will say, well, I've asked, but I never received. Did you lay down? Did you say, God, take possession of my heart and my life? You can do whatever you want in me. The final scripture I'll have you turn to is in the Old Testament book of Ezekiel. And it's where we close. And it's going to leave you with an ultimatum here this morning. Ezekiel chapter 47. It's, if you open right to the middle of your Bible, you'll be right about there. Ezekiel 47. <clears throat> so you'll have Isaiah and then Jeremiah and then Ezekiel. Ezekiel had the gift of prophecy. He had some amazing visions and some amazing experiences. And in one such instance that we're looking at here in chapter 47, Ezekiel has an incredible experience where God carries him away in the spirit and shows him things. And I want you to see what God showed Ezekiel. And I pray that God shows it to you here this morning. It says in verse 1, it says, Afterward, he brought me again to the door of the house. And behold, waters issued out from under the threshold of the house eastward, for the forefront of the house stood toward the east. The house was facing the east. And the waters came down from under the right side of the house at the south side of the altar. So specific, isn't he? I love that. Then brought he me out of the way of the gate northward and led me about the way without unto the utter gate by the way that looks eastward. And behold, there ran out waters on the right side. So God carries Ezekiel and starts walking with him along this river of water that's coming out from the house. And when the man that had the line, which is like a tape measure, it's just a measurement of ruling, um, in his hand, went forth eastward, he measured a thousand cubits, or about 1,500 feet. And he brought me through the waters, and the waters were up to the ankles. So he walks along this little river that's coming out from the temple. And as he walks out from it, he says, get in the water. And as he gets in, the water just comes right up to his ankles. It's ankle-deep water. And then in verse 4, it says, again, he measured another 1,000 cubits, another 1,500 feet. They walk along the side of the river. And he brought me through the waters, and the waters were now to the knees. They're a little bit deeper. Again, he measured a 1,000, and he brought me through, and the waters were to the loins, up to the waist. And then afterward, verse 5, he measured a 1,000 more, and it was a river that I could not pass over. For the waters were risen, waters to swim in, a river that could not be passed over. And he said unto me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he brought me and caused me to return to the brink of the river. And so he basically says to Ezekiel, do you understand? Do you get it? And we don't even get an answer. You know, Ezekiel's probably like, he's doing what I would do. I'm like, yeah, I get it. <laughs> think about it a little bit, you know. 
The river of water in the Bible is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 7, Jesus stood up in the great day of the feast and he said, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. And out of his belly, his innermost being, will flow rivers of living water. And then it tells us exactly what he was talking about. It says, This he spoke concerning the Holy Spirit, which had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. The rivers coming out of the house are symbolic of the Holy Spirit. And what Ezekiel experiences here is what every believer experiences in some way and over some frame of time. The first is that we get into the things of God up to our feet. We get our feet wet. We begin walking with God. And the depth of our devotion is that we're walking with him. And that's about as deep as it goes. But we walk with him for a while and some time passes and we find that the depth of that water is then up to our knees. There's a greater depth. Feet speak of walking. Knees in the Bible speak of what do you think? Knees? Any guesses? What do we do on our knees? We pray, right? And so it's, it's, there's greater depth. And we learn. We walk with Him and His Spirit works in our lives. And we begin to develop a conversation with God. We develop a prayer life. We, develop, uh, we grow to that point where we're, we're communicating with Him. There's an intimacy. It's growing. We're getting deeper. And then we walk along a little bit further. And we get up to the waist, you know, and, and the loins in the Bible always speak of reproduction. We might begin to share our faith. We might begin to speak about God. It might become, uh, begin to become evident that we've, there's a change that's happened in us. There's more depth. God is beginning to show up. There's, there's more of his spirit. There's more depth. But in all of those different things along the way, who has control? We still do, right? If water goes all the way up to your waist, you can get in or get out at will. You, you walk in, you walk out. I can, I'm into God. I'm out of God. Today I'm in. Today I'm out. I'll, I'll do, you know, this whole thing. And that represents a lot of believers. A lot of believers live in this part of the river, the part that goes up to the waist. But then there's a point that God takes every believer to, and he shows them. And there's a rock, and there's an edge. And it's not a gradual getting in of the water. In order to get into the water at this point, it's a leap. And once you get in, the waters are over your head. It's more than something that you can now control. To get into the river at this point means that you're going to go where the river goes. It's saying that I trust the source and the destination of this river so much that I'm willing to throw the entire contents of my life into this river and no longer be an entity unto myself. But I'm giving myself completely to what God wants for my life. That's what we're talking about when we talk about the Spirit-filled life, the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Spirit. What causes it to hinder in so many lives is that we're unwilling to trust God with everything that we have. And so this morning I ask you the question, are you willing to trust God with everything that you have? To say, God, this river might not go where I like and I might not understand how it's winding its way wherever it's going, but I trust you. And I trust that your destiny and desire for me is greater than what I could understand or even wish for myself. And I want everything that you have for my life. And if you're asking me, Lord, to jump in, I'll jump in. That's the asking that he's talking about here. And it's what God wants for every single one of us, that our lives would be consumed by him, that we would know him, that we would know the spirit-filled, spirit-empowered, spirit-driven life.